because the PCA courts are always hard. You come talking that trash, we'll pull your card. We're both in and out of the old guard. The Scotland Yard isn't something we ever disregard. Knowing nothing in life but cabinet's theology, the spirit changes that. You know, it's like the minute you start talking about drugs, everybody has all of their like preconceived notions of what they think you're talking about. Setting free with a now adopted genealogy. Glorify God and enjoying you forever. It's the only endeavor. Whenever, wherever, to whomever. Never that clever. Mm. I heart PCA. Die heart PCA. Bye. Hey out there, this is Doug Servin, and I am one of the hosts of iHeartPCA, a podcast where we're talking about what's good and right and believable and beautiful in the PCA, trying to hit different topics, people, what's going on. And we have a really important special guest with us today. Before I bring her on, I want to say hi to you, Justin. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? Hey, Doug. I'm good. How are you, buddy? I'm pretty good. It's yeah. a normal Friday here in nice. Oklahoma City. And is Looks it a normal it Friday? Hot? It's Yeah, it's hot. How is it in Albuquerque? Uh, it's kind of hot, yeah. It's uh, usually around this time we start to cool down a bit, but it's it's lingering. And where are you in, the, in relation to space right now? I am at my house today, Doug. First time, not at the church building for the pod. See that? I like those curtains. Thank you. This, uh, they have to stay. We're, we're selling our house. And so the curtains have to stay with the house. Oh. No. So, you didn't negotiate that out? No, they negotiated it in and want, wanted all the curtains and curtain rods to stay. You could spray paint something on them. Yeah. Danette was really sad about these ones, the ones that you're looking at. Okay, I wanted to see. ask you. Uh, uh, I'm not too worried. I think it's going to be okay. You can buy new curtains, right? Yeah. They're not one of a kind? They aren't. All right. Today, I want to ask you about something in the past, and it pertains to our guest, but I remember you sent me several years ago, and now you're going to have to root me as to when this was. You fostered a couple of boys. I can't remember if they were twins or brothers. So fill me in on when that was, who we're talking about, because I think my memory is correct, but it's not precise. Uh, two kids in our church uh, who were uh, being fostered by a family in our church, and they were half brothers, um, and they uh we took a respite a couple of times um, to help this family, but then the family approached us about possibly fostering them and maybe adopting them. And so we uh, went through the process uh, to begin that journey. And then uh, as we were doing that, decided that maybe it was not for us. And we found another family who ended up doing it. And then they ended up fostering them and adopting them. And those two boys are, with that family. So it's pretty awesome. Oh, great. Worked out that way. How are they doing yeah. now? Awesome. Yeah. They're doing really, really great. Another minister in town, a uh, youth pastor at another church and his wife ended up fostering them and then adopting them. And so uh, through one of the homeschool communities, that's how the connection ended up being made, made for the boys uh, to end up with these, this couple. So it's pretty, yeah, it's great. So that's an awesome result. As you think about that, it's got to be a lot of mixed emotions, right? Yeah, like we were, uh, we were excited about doing it. We had just had a, a, you know, a baby ourselves, a surprise baby, and he was about one, and then these two boys were two, and then almost four, and you know, uh, we were eager. Uh, but also then re realism of like, um, can we really do this? And that would have meant, you know, that would have meant seven kids for us. And, and at the end of the day, we just you know, trusted that the Lord had a better plan for those boys. And it, it ended up working out that way. And we're thankful. You're fostering too, right, Doug? 
Well, technically not fostering. So we've had a bunch of people live with us. We haven't gone through the foster care system, although we have done gone through the respite care, like you've mentioned. Uh, We have had various people move in for various reasons. And right now we have someone with us, love that guy, wanting the best for him. And uh, so we're involved and it's, you know, it's always an interesting redemptive prayer inducing experience that I think is really important for all of us as Christians and for the church um, Mm -hmm. that we at least are open to that or pray to that and um, work through what that does for our own lives spiritually Mm -hmm. personally. Right. Yeah. We've actually started talking about doing it again as a possible possibility. Um, Now that he's five years old, a little bit older and we have, one kid already out uh, going to college and another one soon to follow. So we've, we've talked about the possibility of entertaining us again, and it's a better time for us to maybe do it. Cool. Well, okay. So I want to bring in our guest, Christina Dent. Christina is the director, founder, CEO, president. I don't know what all titles you want to claim for yourself, Christina. You can do that for yourself. But it's for Ended for Good. And so she's going to tell us all exactly what that is. So first, let's say hi, Christina. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Where are you calling in from? I'm in Jackson, Mississippi. Born and raised here. Still live here. Excellent. All right. So, Christina, we're going to get to what you're doing now. But before that, you know, this is iHeartPCA. So can you just tell us your spiritual journey, how you ended up? getting into this denomination we call the PCA. uh, Keep us up to track to what, then to what you're doing now. Yeah. So I grew up in the PCA. I've been in a PCA church pretty much my whole life here in, um, in Jackson at different um, churches. So my parents are part of the PCA. We, um, had a great experience, a very warm community growing up. Uh, my church community was kind of my friend community, hung out with all the kids from church. And I was homeschooled, but I had friends that went to private school, friends in public school, and we all hung out together on the weekends. We just had a great um, childhood and youth group experience and um, got married uh, when I was in college. And we ended up um, going to a new uh, church plant that was another PCA church and have been there ever since. So <laughs> I've been in the PCA for uh, many, many years. Um, I came to Christ through uh, the ministry of Twin Lake Summer Camp, which is a ministry of First Pres um, Church in Jackson. And um, they had a, they used to actually have like a one week break in the middle of their summer camp where they had what they called PCA camp. Um, and I went to that and came to know the Lord when I was nine, even though I had grown up in a Christian family. Um, in a wonderful Christian home. It was really through um, a skit at that camp. It was, you know, people think, uh, you know, these things are just silly, but really it was a, it was a mimed skit at camp that I was thinking about when I got home and I thought, you know, I have never, I've never given my life to the Lord. I've just kind of like, you know, thought my parents' faith and I just kind of believe that too, I guess, but I, I've laid in bed that night and, um, asked for forgiveness and gave my heart to Christ. So you you really don't know the potential impact of those VBS camps you do and all the little things that we do that we think really don't matter. And they do matter. Nobody that did that skit ever knew that I came to Christ through it. You know, we just don't know. But um, so lots of great things in my life have had um, an impact that the PCA has been a part of. Amen. You know, um, most of the people we talk to don't grow up in the PCA. I didn't. Justin didn't. And then I think about my kids, like they're going to say I grew up in the PCA and I wonder what they're going to say in some podcast in 2035, right. you know, and like, <laughs> it was terrible. I hated it or whatever. <laughs> so it's good to remember that it's not always the worst case scenario. So praise the Lord, right? That's a Amen. beautiful, wonderful testimony that we hope our kids would have 
Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to say uh, they got saved by the mind skit, though. Any of our kids. <laughs> I know. Well, you never know. I don't know if my you kids would know. know what that is. <laughs> they might not. But to watch some videos, right? So, Christina, then, then tell us how you got to what you're doing now, and then we'll talk about what you're doing now exactly. But there's been a journey to go from what you just described to to today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there has. So, um, I grew up in a, a wonderful community, very conservative, politically conservative. Um, I remember sitting in church and um, not because of anything anyone ever explicitly told me, but just kind of the air I breathed. I remember thinking, I don't understand why they don't just hand out lists of who we're supposed to vote for, because surely everybody here is voting for the same people, like all Christians vote for the same people. Um, and nobody ever told me that. I think I was just surrounded by people who uh, generally thought along the same political lines. And that was just what I thought. And so it was only really as an adult that I, um, in the church plant that we were in, really began to kind of understand the, the breadth of views and perspectives and life experiences and why people think the way that they do and why people vote differently than they, you know, than each other. And Christians have lots of different opinions on the best way to live out our um, values related to lots of different things, including politics. And so um, I went to a Christian university. I got a degree in Bible. Um, all of that happened in Jackson. And um, I never used drugs, never was involved with drugs, did not have friends that used drugs. Um, I still have never used any kind of illegal drug. I don't drink. I just drugs and drug use is not part of my life at all. Um, and I did not, was not confronted with it or its effects in any way until we became foster parents. So, um, that happened about six years ago. My husband and I really thought we wanted to adopt and had talked about that ever since we got married. Um, we didn't feel a strong leading at that time for what, what we should do related to that. And so we thought, well, maybe we could foster for a little while while we're trying to figure out what to do about this adoption thing. And if, if kids that we foster end up needing an adopted family, then there, that's the answer to, to that dilemma. So we signed up to become foster parents and we um, started fostering, fostered for about four years. And um, the second child that we fostered, we met his mom really early on. So he came home straight from the hospital because she had used drugs while she was pregnant. Um, and in many places, it's still an automatic uh, removal into foster care if a mom admits that she has used substances during her pregnancy. Um, and so he came to our house, this little tiny five pound, nine ounce preemie. And the only thing I knew was that I don't know how a mom who loved her child could use drugs while she was pregnant. So clearly she doesn't love him because otherwise she wouldn't have been doing that. Hmm. Um so I brought him to his first visit at the child welfare office uh, about a week or two after he came to live with us. And um, I pulled into the parking lot and uh, I had my three other little boys with me. And so I popped Beckham, the baby's car seat out and turned around in the parking lot. And there is this woman sprinting across the parking lot towards me with tears streaming down her face. And she doesn't look at me. She just covers Beckham in kisses talking to him, how much she missed him, how much she loved him. Mm. Um, and that was his mom, Joanne. And I just felt incredible suspicion. How could she do what she did if she loves him this much? She must be just putting on a show. This must be so that I'll put in a good word with the social worker. Um, and I, that, that just crushes my heart to say now. I, I can't, it, I, I recognize now how incredibly painful that is. Um, for a mom who's struggling to know that that is what people think um, about her. And I don't think I'm unique in, in thinking that. I think that's common for a lot of us that just don't understand the nature of addiction or what people are struggling with. Um, and so I, she had her one hour of visit with him and then he came back to our house and she left for inpatient um, drug treatment. She had used drugs for many years, had struggled with addiction for a long, long time. Um, but was able to go to treatment. So she would call me from treatment and she would ask me to put her on speakerphone and she would sing to him over the phone, um, her little tiny newborn baby. He would be sleeping and she would say, can you just put me on speakerphone? I just want to sing to him. And she would sing to him. And I just felt this incredible war in my heart begin over 
you know, I'm, I'm seeing something in her thing, a, a type of vulnerability and just raw love that I don't think I would be willing to show to anyone else. I, I think I would be too proud to do that. Um, I wouldn't want people to see that I couldn't sing to him in person because uh, I had been using drugs. And so I have to sing to him over the phone. I think I would have just not sung to him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just began to feel, I think this is real. I think her love for him is real. And and if it is, and I think it is, then I have terribly misunderstood addiction and how we have responded to it and how we are responding to it. Um, I knew that we were putting moms like Joanne in prison every single day in Mississippi. We have the second highest incarceration rate in the country. The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world, other than um, countries that are in active civil war or dictatorships like North Korea. Um, The United States incarcerates an enormous amount of its um, population uh, relative to anywhere else in the world. So I knew that was happening, but I just thought that's the right thing to do. Um, But now I'm really confronted with the humanity behind what we're doing. This is Joanne. And how would it help her and Beckham, this vulnerable family? She desperately loves him. She's also struggling. Um, what would happen to them if we put her in prison for 10 or 15 years? Now, Beckham doesn't have a mom. Is he going to, you know, bounce around in foster care? Is extended family going to try to figure out a way to keep him in the family, even while they're um, struggling with other things as well? And I just couldn't. I couldn't let that go. I, I felt like something is shifting inside of me. Um, I'm being confronted, honestly, with a lot of my own sin and my own judgment, my own um, desire to see my life as put together. Um, so the PCA in some ways is a great place for me because I like things <laughs> ordered and structured. I like people you know, following the rules and doing the right things. And I figured out early on in my life what you do so that people like you and pat you on the back. And I did all of those things. So my life has been filled with people liking me and patting me on the back. I've led lots of ministries. I've done all sorts of things, church related and community related. Um, And, you know, I I haven't faced people's judgment and ridicule. Um, I've been able to be uh, the kind of person that, you know, uh, that we kind of want people to be someone that, you know, they, we can look at and say, good job. Um, you, you ticked off everything off the list. You followed all the rules. And so um, it was this incredibly humbling process for me to be confronted with how much I wanted to find things wrong with her. I mean, I remember thinking about, you know, well, she has tattoos and, you know, never mind the fact that I wanted a tattoo. I just never, I couldn't get one. I just felt like, I don't know, I can't really actually do that. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for reasons to, to think of her as somebody not like me. This is somebody other than me. This is somebody who, who couldn't ever be me. And what I was really confronted with is this is actually a mom just like me. Um, she loves her son just as much as I love my three boys. She's struggling with this complex health crisis. Um, but she's not a criminal and to treat her like one would be, um, a, a gross misunderstanding of the nature of the issues that she's facing and what she's trying to uh, achieve in her life. And um, that really just set me on a journey to learn. And I wanted to know more than just how can we better respond to Joanne? I wanted to know what's really happening with drugs and drug use and addiction and how could we get better outcomes? Um, because if we're wrong, about any part of it, we're wrong on a massive scale. This is impacting millions and millions of families. Um, about 10% of the American population has some sort of substance use disorder of some kind, a problematic relationship with drugs of, of some nature. Some of that's alcohol, some of it's other drugs. One in 10 Americans uses illegal drugs. Um, and we don't like to think about that. We don't, we think of that as like out there, but it's not, it's in here. It is us. It's people we're in Kroger with. It's people um, we're sitting in the pews with. It's people all over the place. And so it's a huge issue. Um, and I wanted to know, is there something we could do 
that's different, that would better support particularly vulnerable families like Joanne's. I didn't come at it kind of, you know, how can, um, you know, how can we sort of get rid of all of the people causing problems? But really, if I want to care for kids in foster care, I have to care about what we're doing with drugs because half of the kids in Mississippi's foster care system are there because of some sort of drug-related issue. That's true nationwide, too. Drugs is a huge driver of why children are in foster care. So um, I once heard somebody say, you know, to care about orphans in Africa, you have to care about the AIDS crisis. Um, and I think that's true of foster care and drugs in the U.S. If we want to care about kids in foster care, we have to care about what's happening with drugs and how we're approaching drugs and people who use them. So how did you make then the jump from, so, you know, lots of times we have folks who have this holy discontent that's created by some circumstance that they see or witness or are part of, or somebody that they know, they start to empathize uh, or sympathize with what's happening. How did you then make the jump to take all of, you know, what you experienced and start a ministry? And what is that ministry's kind of aim and you know, what's the driving thing that it wants to do? Yeah. So I um, began to change my mind over, um, took me a couple of years of learning and really wrestling through what I learned on that journey. And could I really believe those things? And, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to give the kind of what I learned. You can uh, listen to it. It's a TEDx talk I gave last year. You can just Google TEDx Christina Dent and you can hear it. And I'll, I'll walk you through what I learned on that, that journey that changed my mind about how we approach drugs. Um, but what I came to the conclusion um, of is that uh, how we handle drugs is really all about how we handle people um, and why people use drugs is what we need to focus on far more than the actual substance that they're using. So people are using substances for a reason. They make them feel better than they do right now. Um, it, whether we like that or not, that's just the nature of substance use. People want to change the way that they feel. Um, sometimes that's because they've experienced trauma um, or they have a life that they don't want to be fully present for. All of us can resonate with that in some way. You know, we use different things to kind of cover up those feelings. But um, so the more I learned about addiction, the more I thought, you know, I have, I've changed my mind over these years over um, not using a criminal justice approach for drugs, but using a health based approach for drugs. Um, particularly where the law is concerned, when we talk about how do we handle these things through the law, um, that it should not be a criminal justice approach. It's really a complex health issue. Now, it might be a spiritual issue wrapped up in that also, lots of other things, but it's just not a criminal issue that people are dealing with. Um, so, and so for the people who are listening, Christina, what, what is like, uh, what would be an example of a criminal justice approach? Like, mm -hmm. Good question. Um, so with drug policy, there's kind of two categories. One is um, criminalizing people who are using substances. So if you're caught with a substance that's illegal, um, you're arrested because you're in possession of an illegal substance. Um, the other is actually the criminalization of the, the substance itself. So you can, you, can, you can not arrest people who are in possession of substances but you can still keep those substances illegal. Like you can, you cannot allow them to be sold legally. Um, and there are places that have done that like Portugal. So you're not arrested for possessing a substance that's illegal, but you can't produce it and sell it legally. It's still sold on the underground market. The market. Um, so kind of Joanne changed my mind sort of about how we approach people who are using drugs or struggling with addiction that really criminalizing them is really just compounding the trauma that a lot of them are already trying to um, escape from, which is not going to help them stop using. Um, but also thinking through how do we, do we allow those substances to be sold legally? Um, the more that I learned about what happens if we don't kind of the alternative, uh, we hope that the alternative is they just go away. Like if we criminalize a substance, if we make it illegal, it will just go away. Um, but it doesn't go away. It, it goes underground and that has a lot of really negative impacts for um, communities related to crime. So gangs, cartels, all of the violence, the majority of the crime that we, we have in America, but really around the world, south of our border, certainly um, is driven by this underground drug market that is 
is right. fueling money into criminal activity. You can only get the money if you're willing to participate in criminal activity. Um, so I, I became convinced on both pieces that we should decriminalize people who are using drugs, but we should also allow substances to be sold legally um, and regulated because it's that's the only way you can regulate something. Um, if you ban it, it's kind of in this underground free-for-all. Um, and that's really detrimental, particularly to vulnerable communities because that's where... Um, an underground market can really take hold. So you see that a lot in urban communities. You see it in poor communities where um, uh, I was talking to a guy two weeks ago who grew up in Detroit. And he said, you know, growing up all around me, what I saw was the people that had the nice cars and the nice houses were drug dealers. So I grew up and that was my dream job. That's what I wanted to be. I didn't even know I had other options. I thought that's what successful people do. And so he did, and he ended up in prison um, for a number of years uh, for participating in that. But that's driven by this this underground market. Um, and so I kind of became convinced on both and have now started a nonprofit, End Up For Good, that I lead full-time now. And we invite other people to consider this, these issues. It's really a lot of what we do is just bring people to the table and ask them to think and to learn and to journey with us and to consider if there's something better we can this do. This is an important place and good place to push pause. We're going to take our break. And uh, so on the front end of this break, I want to make sure everyone knows, really do Google Christina's TEDx talk. It is amazing. And she lays all this out. So we don't want to just redo that TED talk because it's amazing. And then also go on her end it for good website, which is not hard to find. And there are tons of resources, podcasts. She um, goes into deep dives on some of these also reviews past um, considerations that they've had. And so it's a, a tremendous resource as she's uh, advocating that we would have a different approach or thought process to drugs and drug use and laws and criminalization. We're going to come back and get into a little bit of the philosophy of that. And uh, I'm interested to hear what she thinks, right? So, okay. So we'll come back. We'll get, we'll catch you in just a minute. Chris Talley, and I am the pastor and church planner of Lakeway Presbyterian Church in Morristown, Tennessee. Listeners of iHeart PCA can go look up Questions of the Heart written by Kevin Thumpston. Questions of the Heart helps us love well by listening well to the unspoken, deep questions people are really asking. Kevin shows us how to lean in and cultivate a heart more attuned to the questions so many are wrestling with. Questions of the Heart is about sharing stories of faith with a world that desperately needs them. You can find Questions of the Heart by Kevin Thumpston on Amazon, in paperback, or Kindle. iHeartPCA is also brought to you by church plants like mine. Welcome back to iHeartPCA. We are talking to Christina Dent, and she is the she leads End It For Good, which I've been super impressed with. We a lot of times like to have our friends and people we know, but it's just amazing to me to, to highlight what's going on with people in the PCA that I didn't even know about. And exciting to see the creative juices and the intersection of theology, and society. And that's really what I want to ask you about coming out of the break, Christina, is as a conservative, theologically conservative Presbyterian, it seems like you're entering into a murky area that we're not always super comfortable with. And so how have you... It's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, it was Made a that really work. hard journey. It was I have a follow-up after that, but um, it wasn't just painful kind of um, kind of this internal seeing how I had had been able to 
kind of cast off whole categories of people, even while I am a pretty deeply empathetic person in general. And yet I could turn that off for people who were using drugs. Like it just didn't apply to them Um, or people struggling with addiction or whatever the case may be. So uh, it was really hard. I remember thinking as I was learning and trying to figure out like, what do I think about all of this? I remember thinking, if I change my mind on this, like if I, I, I see all of this evidence that legal regulation approach to drugs would dramatically reduce harm to people, which has always been my goal. I don't really care about drugs. I really care about people. Um, it just happens to be that I think how we approach drugs is really harming lots and lots of people. That's why I'm interested in the issue. Um, but I remember thinking, if I change my mind on this, does that mean that I can't be a Christian anymore? You know, And this is in my late 20s. And I that, that feeling of, this issue has been so deeply embedded in my political leanings as someone who's conservative. And that has kind of been tied up in my faith journey, kind of seeing faith and politics as very intertwined during my growing up years. And um, it was really difficult to kind of pull that apart a little bit and say, Yes. I mean, I, I absolutely, it wasn't that I ever began to doubt that I was a Christian. I just, I really had this feeling of, you know, um, are other people going to think that I'm not a Christian anymore? Are they going to think I've given up on my values? Yeah. So I, I came to so the then conclusion. What changed? How that, did it resolve um, to where you got to where I you are could, now? that I could hold the tension of supporting a change in policy for drugs that I don't want people using, but I could allow for them to be used legally uh, because of the amount of good that it would do for people. Um, And it really, it would have been easier, much easier for me if I had ended up at a different place. Like if I had thought, well, I just can't support that. Um, it's a lot harder to hold those things in tension. But I think that if we want better outcomes, we have to be able to hold that tension to say, there are things that are that I don't want people doing, maybe things that are even sinful, that re- that shouldn't be illegal, like we shouldn't be putting people in jail for them. Um, and I think we that we recognize that, you know, adultery, we don't throw people in jail when they commit adultery. And yet, you know, it's, it's immoral, it's sinful, it always hurts lots of people um, to engage in it. And, and yet, as Christians, we don't say, well, we should be lobbying for all adulterers to be put in prison. Uh, we, have a, we have a way of holding that tension that there are things that are really detrimental that should not be criminal. Um, so I, I think being able to, to see that we already have these categories, I just don't think we've really thought about it being applied to something like drugs, we think, no, that's, you know, we're, we're either celebrating drugs or we're criminalizing them. And there's a third path there um, where we can say we're not celebrating them, but, but to criminalize them is doing so much harm, particularly to vulnerable communities that I can be okay um, with the law allowing people to access them um, because it does end a lot of the harm that's being done to people. So that's how I've kind of walked that path. I wouldn't say, I would never say, you know, Christians have to support this. I think this is a, an area we have Christian freedom to, to wrestle through on our own. What do we feel like is the best expression um, of our faith? That's right. Mm-hmm. We always like supporting the third way here at IRPCA, right, Justin? So it, I think we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but we don't have that much time. My then question is, what's been the reception, I guess, at the church in large and then the PCA specifically to your message? Um because it seems like a little bit poking at some of the important principles of a larger denomination that I 
personally disagree with, but you know, like when you start talking about decriminalizing yeah. um, drug so use, I, lots of different I would think people would start to freak out. I, you sort of alluded uh, to that. So what's been the response? I think I, I can see myself in pretty much every response that I've heard. So, you know, the first time that somebody asked me, what did I think about legalizing substances? I literally was so angry. I left the room. I could not even imagine that a Christian would be saying those words. I didn't even know anybody actually thought that, like much less a Christian person. I mean, it just was, I could, like my heart rate went through the roof. I was just so mad. Um, so I, I really understand and resonate and, and try to be extremely sensitive to people's um, perspectives, and which is why I, I really am careful to allow people to be wherever they are. I want to have a dialogue with people, um, but it took me a couple of years of learning and wrestling to, to come to a place where I understood the issue enough to really make a, a decision. So um, I had, there was one lady who came to um, a community discussion that we hosted, which is a lot of our work. So we host discussions in different cities around Mississippi. Uh, we provide dinner for people. They come, I do the TEDx presentation, and then we discuss it. And they, they're welcome to say, I completely disagree with everything. They're welcome to say, marijuana has destroyed Colorado. They can say whatever they want to say. I won't correct them. It is open dialogue. As long as you're respectful, you're welcome to have any opinion you want. And she said, um, uh, she said, I read one of the articles that you wrote in the newspaper. And I thought, I don't agree with anything she said. Um, and this is a wonderful, dear woman. She is, she's at my church. We are friends. Um, and, and that to me, I think I'm so glad that she came. And I'm so glad she felt that she could say that, that it's, it's not a combative environment. We, it's a, it's an environment where you can say that and we can disagree and we can still be in fellowship together. Um, and we can still both be wanting the same things. Um, she wants fewer people to be harmed from drugs. I want fewer people to be harmed from drugs. We see a different path, um, forward on that. And that's okay. I think there's, there's room for us to be in dialogue about that. Um, so I've had a lot of people, a surprising number of people, not just in my own church, but um, at other churches who, let's say they never say anything on social media. They never comment on anything I post. They don't interact in any way. Um, and yet in person, they'll come up to me and say, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, and then they'll tell me their story. And I probably one of the nearest things to my heart is how many people and families are suffering silently in the church with addiction, with loss, with um, parents struggling through feeling like it's their fault that their children are using substances, that they failed as a parent. Um, there are a lot of people suffering. And one of the sweetest parts of what has come out of what I've done, which I did not think would, would be part of it at all, was that as I'm publicly talking about um, seeing this through um, more, uh, I would say compassionate eyes, but really compassion to see the real issues, to see why people are using substances and the challenges that, that they're trying to self-medicate. Um, I think people are looking for safe places to share the hurt and the journeys that they're walking through personally. Um, and so, you know, for most people, they assume that the response is going to be stigma because that is our cultural response to people. And that is kind of what we think about, you know, we, we all want our own kids not to use substances. And so it's, it's easier to blame the parents than to, <laughs> than to think maybe this could actually happen to me too. Um, and so I think as I've talked publicly, it has opened the door for people to be able to share. And that's been a really sweet thing. I found far more people agree than, than disagree. Um, now you could say, well, they're just not telling you if they disagree. I think that's true. But I have been shocked at the people who will come up to me and say, I agree, or, or maybe I don't agree, but I've really never thought about it this way before. I didn't realize there was a cost to what we were doing right now. Um, so yeah, I think it's been, it's been both, but overwhelmingly positive. And I did not expect that. I thought there would be a far greater cost to me personally. Um, and that I'd, it, it's been encouraging to me. Good. Great. 
I know Justin's about to start to ask the last question and maybe even a question before the last question. Before he does that, um, I think you're 100% right to then focus on people. And what we're also talking about is how policies affect people. And so uh, you, in your TED Talk, you talk about, you know, the policy of prohibition affected a whole swath of people and time and legality of things. And, and so then our policies and what we do with public schools and poverty and lack of opportunity and policing and what we say is wrong and how much time you get if you hold something that's wrong, you know, these really, they are affecting people. So the policies are connected into this. And, and so we really have to think about what we as a church want to maybe not in the pulpit, but as church members do to help people because we're making rules and laws that help them flourish or really set them back. So that's a a really important, I think, work that we can do that I'm really happy that you're promoting and talking about and having conversations about. Whether we disagree or agree, they're important conversations. Yeah. I think the two things you said there are so important, which is um, it's challenged. It would be easier if it wasn't policy related. If we could just say, look, guys, we need to just help more people. Can we just like start a ministry to help people? Um, and we need lots of ministries that help people because there's a lot of people that need help. But the a lot of this harm is actually policy caused. You know, underground market is caused by policies. Adulterated, contaminated substances are caused by policies. Criminalization of people for struggling with addiction is a policy. So um, that's it's challenging because I'm not a I'm, you know, we don't do lobbying. We're not involved in legislative. Um, we really are involved in conversation and in bringing this to the table and inviting people to have a a good conversation, a respectful dialogue about it. Um, But that's a great point that at the end of the day, a lot of this is policy related. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges for people to engage in is, um, is that it actually will require, if we want change, it will require us to do that. But the other thing is just that the, the role of individual Christians. So um, that was not something I heard growing up, kind of the difference between the church's role versus individual Christians' role. And I really struggled with that. Um, and I, if there's an encouragement I could give to other people in ministry leadership roles, it's to help um, their parishioners understand that just because the church is not speaking about something does not mean that that you can't speak about something, that there's actually there, there's a good place for individual Christians to be living out what they believe God is calling them to. And, and we're not to wait until we hear that from the pulpit. Um, and that, uh, that took talking to a couple pastors about for me going, I don't understand. Am I doing something like, is it wrong? I don't feel like pastors should really be preaching about legalization. And yet, am I wrong to be talking about it if they're not talking about it? Um, so I think that's really helpful and really important for us to understand there's, we want to protect the role of the church, but the church should inform then the things we're learning there should send regular Christians out. It's, I see this as, you know, this is what, you know, I, I believe this is a, um, uh, a living out of what God has led me to, which isn't to say that other people's living out isn't what he's leading them to. Um, but I think it's empowering for Christians to, to recognize that rather than to, um, to feel sort of held back by, I can only do things that, you know, my pastor's talking about or my church is promoting, um, that God calls us to go into the public square and to go into other places and, um, live out, uh, what, what it is that we feel led to do. So Christina, like, as we head into the end here, like, um, I think my questions relate to this as far as action oriented kind of things. And the first one is you talked a lot about how one, you can be a safe person and advocate an advocate. And so I think that the first part of this question to try to answer quickly is like, how can church members as individuals be safe 
people and advocates for those who are caught in uh, addiction cycles. And then second, uh, what's the one place to attack policy? Um, if you care about this issue, if you care about the destructive nature of, you know, our criminal justice policy related to drugs, what's one thing that you can do to affect that policy as someone who's in the PCA and walking through this? And you have three minutes. So those would be the last. Excellent. There okay. you go. Doug's put a timer on. <laughs> um, so I would say for people to be a safe person, what I've found is that you kind of have to take the first step. If you're waiting for people who are struggling to come to you to say, I'm struggling. Do you still accept me? Will you still love me? Will you not judge me? Uh, we're asking more of them than they're going to be able to give. They already feel shame. They already feel judged. Society's yeah. giving that to them all the time. So I, I see that as my, my talking about this on social media is an invitation for people to see that I care about them um, long before they're ever ready to tell me that anything is wrong or that they're struggling or that they have a family member who's struggling. I think the way that we can publicly um, show care, uh, and it may feel like, well, that's not personal to a particular person. It is personal to them. They're, they're looking for places where they feel safe and for people who are safe. And that's a lot of times they're going to figure that out long before they ever trust you with any information about what they're struggling with. Um, so I think publicly sharing yeah, so that, is important. Yeah. Pursuit, mm -hmm. right. That's a way mm -hmm. of pursuit, like inviting. Mm -hmm. And I know for, for my family, we had drug addiction in my family. My grandpa was a drug dealer, was murdered mm -hmm. uh, because of, as a, as a dealer, wow. he was, he was shot by another dealer. Um, and my, my family has had addiction. My aunt uh, OD'd, uh, struggled with addiction most of her life. My uncle had addiction issues. My sister has had addiction issues. But the shame piece was great, right? So how, and I often felt like I didn't necessarily always know how to engage. Um, and and I stood as, as someone in judgment, even though I wasn't judging, like, because of the shame that they felt. And so that's an important piece. So what about policy? What's the one policy? Yeah, place? so policy, if people aren't comfortable advocating for actual legalization of something, I would say marijuana would be the, the biggest um, important piece of the most people are using that by far of any illegal substance. So the biggest impact on, you know, bringing a, a market back into legality would be the marijuana market. Um, but decriminalizing drug use um, it's something most people, once they begin to kind of think a little bit about, yes, well, we, you know, we really shouldn't be criminalizing people. Like they need help. They don't really need jail. Um, decriminalizing drug use can happen at a city level, at a county level, at a state level, at the federal level. Um, you can do that wherever you are. You could go to your city council and ask them, you know, could you consider um, decriminalizing marijuana possession or um, and that, and that really is just the, the, the first step. I think this is going to be lots of a thousand incremental steps, um, to get us out of what we have, what we have today. And anybody can do that. Um, and your policymakers are waiting for public opinion to tell them that this is something we want. So, we think of policymakers as leaders, but really, especially on polarizing topics like drug policy, they are followers. They're not going to stick their neck out there before they know that their constituents support that kind of change. So it's really important. Again, that public piece, it's, I know we want to change our minds and we want to just say, you know, sometime I'll vote, you know, for this to change, but that vote's never going to happen if we don't actually publicly say, you know, I've, I've been rethinking this issue and I really think maybe we could get some better outcomes if we stopped putting people in jail. It's just not helping um, for drug issues. And that, right. that piece is really what brings that to people's mind and it allows your policymakers to see that tide is shifting. Well, I think also then to bring it in is even just aside from decriminalizing, it's like, what's the penalty and so if you're going to put someone in jail for a year, take away their license, 
And so then they can't go to work and they have to pay the fees and they can't pay the fees because they don't have a job because they can't get to. So like, what's the, what's the pathway out? If you say this is wrong and maybe we all agree with you or don't, but what's the, what pathway are we going for a future instead of incarceration only? And then you started getting into all these other issues, which, which you bring out in your talk and in your website and what you're talking about. So we got to stop. Christina, it's so great to have you. I'm so grateful to get to know you, uh, to hear about and if for good. And so I hope everybody will get on there, start there at least poking around and you have different entry points as to what people can do, what they can watch, what they can listen to, what they can sign up for. Right. Um, yeah. To even just, start to have a little bit of an action plan. So one action plan would be get on there and find out what the other action plans are. Yep, absolutely. Right? I'll tell you what happened with Joanne because people always are like, what happened with Joanne? <laughs> uh, she's doing great today. She's in long-term sobriety and um, Beckham turned four last uh, mm -hmm. November and they're doing great. She has remained a friend. Um, she visits me when they come in town sometimes and um, she's doing great. She's a huge success story. It doesn't always turn out their way, but there's a lot of moms like her um, in prison today. So but she's doing great and Beckham is doing great. So. Oh, it's so good to hear. Thanks for the update. So this is iHeartPCA. We're talking about stuff like this, which is amazing. And I'm thankful to get to do it and to hear about it and learn. We're all trying to be learners as we walk with Jesus together and seek his good for his kingdom and his church. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Justin. And uh, we'll see everybody soon. Soon enough. <laughs>